Morning doorway, morning wall, morning ceiling, good morning floor. Ready to start the day. Ah, here it is. Instructions to fit in, have everybody like you and always be happy. Step one, breathe. Okay, got that one down. Step two, greet the day's smile and say, Good morning, city! Step three, exercise. Jumping jacks, hit them. One, two, three. I am so pumped up. Step four, shower. And always be sure to keep the soap out of your ass. Shave your face. Brush your teeth. Comb your hair. <laughs> Wear clothes. Oop, almost forgot that one. No, no, uh-uh, no, not that wrong. And that's it, check. Step nine, eat a complete breakfast with all the special people in your life. Hey, Planty, what do you want to do this morning? Watch TV? Me too. Hi, I'm President Business, President of the Octan Corporation and the world. Let's take extra care to follow the instructions or you'll be put to sleep. And don't forget, Taco Tuesday's coming next week. That's the day every rule-following citizen gets a free taco and my love. Have a great day, everybody. You have a great day, too, President Business. Man, he's such a cool guy. I always want to hear more of what... Wait, did he say put to sleep? Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Rains. I am one of the pastors here. And I love to find um, highly spiritual connections in animated children's movies. So that was the Lego movie. And I hope you noticed that Emmett, the Lego guy, pulled a book off of his shelf. But pay attention to the particular type of book it is. It's a how-to book. It's an instruction manual. And it's published by the Octan Corporation, uh, which is run by President Business. And so early on in this kid's movie, you have uh, this instruction manual for life. And what you heard in that clip, President Business said, if you do not follow the instructions that I have written down, I'm going to put you to sleep. But if you do follow the instructions, then I will give you a free taco and my love. It, it's the very definition of conditional love. What love looks like when there are strings attached. And conditional love, it's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, if you obey, good things will happen. If you disobey, bad things will happen. And there are a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people who are convinced this is what uh, religion is all about. Uh, this is what faith, this is what Christianity, this is what church is all about. Like a lot of people think you come to church and the reason you come to church is so the preacher can scream and yell at you for a while and remind you how terrible you are following the rules. You hang your head in guilt and shame and you, you leave kind of with your fingers crossed hoping that grace is real. And, and sometimes it's even worse than that. Sometimes uh, people think the purpose of church is to show up for 60 or 70 minutes and, and to be a part of my holy huddle. And we kind of cower together inside our church buildings, and we, we listen to the preacher point their finger and scream and yell at the big bad sinners out there in the world, and then we all like to be together because we all think exactly the same way about everything, and, and we're like, can you believe how awful it is out there? 
Uh, can you, the world is going to hell. It's never been as bad as it is right now in the history of the world, but thank goodness for my church where we can pat ourselves on the back once a week and say, at least we're following the rules better than everybody else. Now, where would somebody come up with such an incredibly crazy misinterpretation of what faith is all about? Maybe from reading their Bible. Uh, our Bible reading today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Hebrew scriptures. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then finally Deuteronomy. And, and sometimes faithful people will say, I really want to challenge myself to read through the entire Bible in a year. We got people in our church doing that this year. Back in December, they uh, signed up for that. And so in January, we start uh, emailing every week. Here's the readings for the week. And if you read through these, uh, all of these readings, by the end of the year, if you do it every week, you'll have read through the entire Bible cover to cover. And typically when people start out uh, trying to follow that challenge, it goes really, really well for about a month. But by the time you get to, you know, January, the end of January, you turn in the corner into February, you're in week five. I mean, the first month, the first four weeks, it's great because it's Genesis, it's a little bit of Exodus, you got a creation and Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark and Jacob and Esau, you get Moses and uh, the Exodus, some really cool stories and crazy things that are happening. But that fifth week, you enter Leviticus. <laughs> it's the law. And it's just heavy lifting. But if you're committed and you fight your way through it, you got the willpower to fight your way through Leviticus, you get to Numbers. And Numbers has some cool stories in it, but it also has a lot of genealogical lists and names of people that you can't pronounce and numbers of people in this tribe and numbers of people in that tribe. And it doesn't seem relevant to anything at all. Why in the world am I spending my time, wasting my time reading this? If you make it through that, you get to Deuteronomy, and then Deuteronomy seems like it's a repeat of portions of Exodus and portions of Leviticus. A lot of people give up before they even finish reading Deuteronomy. So our Bible readings from Deuteronomy 6, and I want us to read this verse together, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, I think we'll put it up. There it is. Uh, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands. And again, part of what you see in this part of Scripture is command after command, rule after rule, law after law. Everybody say Torah. Torah is the Hebrew word uh, for law. And so these first five books of the Bible, they're referred to as the Torah, the law of Moses. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands, to these rules, to these instructions, to these laws. This is what God says to the people of Israel as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Now, if you were to keep reading in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, past verse 9, where our Bible reading for the day stopped off, you would start to see some pretty severe warnings. What will happen to you if you do not follow the commands? Uh, verse 15 is an example. God's anger will flare up against you and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. Or verse 18, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so all will go well with you. If you're watching the Lego movie and simultaneously reading Deuteronomy 6, which might be a stretch, uh, but I did it this week. It would not be a stretch if you're watching the Lego movie and reading Deuteronomy 6 to come to the conclusion, God is president business. God's just like him. God. Uh, president business sometimes referred to as Lord business in the movie. And basically what we read in Deuteronomy 6 is God's love is conditional. 
If you do not follow my instructions, it will not go well for you. If you do follow my instructions, I'll give you a free taco and my love. This is why it's so important to actually read the Bible to cover, cover to cover. To, to know the whole story, the full picture of how God interacts with God's people. Deuteronomy, uh, the Law of Moses, the Torah, this is all Old Testament stuff. Uh, what we know about Jesus, what we read about Jesus is in the New Testament. And the beginning of the New Testament are four books called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Matthew's Gospel, kind of at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we get uh, what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And pretty early on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spends some time talking about Torah. So here's part of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17. Let's read this out loud together. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Okay, so the Torah is the written law. And, you know, not everybody had a copy of the Bible back in those days. There were some scrolls that some people had, and these people would study the Bible. And over the centuries, there, there developed, the, it was called the oral tradition, uh, because the religious leaders, the religious teachers, they were called rabbis, they would take the Torah, the written law of Moses, and they would interpret the finer points of it, because people had questions. The Torah, the written law says, do not commit murder, but exactly what do we mean by that? Like, uh, is self-defense murder? Or, I don't know, if there's an accident and it was somebody's fault, but it wasn't intentional and somebody gets hurt, somebody dies, is that murder? Or what about if I kill someone on the battlefield, is that murder? And so the, the rabbis would interpret, he, here's how we can apply the Torah, the written law, to day-to-day -day life. What we see Jesus doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is that sort of thing. A lot of people were following Jesus as their rabbi, uh, as their interpreter of the Torah. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to accomplish its purpose. I came to accomplish its purpose. So what's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the law? So uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, Martin Luther says there's three uses of the law, is what he says. First use of the law, the law is a curb. The law is a curb. If you ever forget what's the purpose of a curb, zit, let this image remind you. Uh, at Hope, we say we want to avoid the ditches, right? We want to stay on the road. And so the curb is what helps us do that. If you hit a curb too hard and you go into the ditch, bad things can happen. People can get hurt, and we don't want that. So Luther says, think of the law as a curb. It keeps you on the road. Uh, it keeps things orderly in a world that can get out of order and chaotic very easily. Pastor Ashley talked about that a little bit uh, last week. The law is a curb that keeps us on the path that leads to life or that gives us life. Second use of the law, uh, Luther says, the law is a mirror. One month from today, my wife Wendy and I will celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Here's a picture of us uh, on our wedding day. I, I wanted to have kind of the classic look uh, at our wedding, so I wanted a handkerchief in my pocket, but I wanted the classic fold so it would just be straight right across there. Well, a couple of times on the wedding day, uh, one of my groomsmen came up to me and he said, hey, Scott, your handkerchief doesn't look right. I'm like, no, 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 this is the way I want it to be straight across the top. Well, when the pictures came back, I realized uh, he was trying to tell me, yeah, it's fine if you want it straight. It should stick out like, 
a half a centimeter, maybe a centimeter. It looks like you've got a prenuptial agreement in your... <laughs> what is going on? My friend was trying to be a mirror. He was trying to tell me the truth uh, that I could not see or that I was unaware of. And, and Luther says, the law, one of the uses of the law, part of the purpose of the law is to be a mirror in our life to tell us the truth about ourselves. Tell us the truth about our sin. Uh, without the law, we may not know the ways that our words, our actions, our behaviors are uh, not helping and sometimes are hurting the people around us. So the law is a mirror that tells us the truth. The law is a curb that keeps us on the path to life. And then the third use of the law, Martin Luther says, the law is a guide. We all need someone to follow, someone to lead us, someone to uh, show us the way. And so part of the purpose of the law, Luther says, it's a guide to show us the way. It's a mirror to tell us the truth. It's a curb to keep us on the path to life. It's almost like Luther is saying, one of the ways to think about the law, the law is the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll come back to that a little bit later in the message. And so there were these rabbis who were teaching, who were instructing, here's how you uh, make sense uh, of the law. And this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I want to just read to you a little bit of what Jesus has to say. This is Matthew chapter 5. I'll start in verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, Jesus says, I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot... You are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Yeah, we should maybe talk about this for a second, <laughs> shouldn't we? Uh, congratulations, Cyclones. Once every eight years, I got to pull out my Cyclone Victory sweater vest. Uh, I think you're going to have a good year. It's going to be fun to watch. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to my Hawkeyes. Anyway. <laughs> My brother has season tickets to Hawkeye games, and so we go to a handful a year, and, and we were at uh, Kinnick Stadium last Saturday. And uh, we had my son Dalton with me and his girlfriend Ruby, and it was her first time going to Kinnick Stadium. And so, you know, we're doing all the traditional things that you do uh, when you go to the game, and at the end of the first quarter, it's the wave, right? It's wonderful, beautiful, um, tearjerker kind of a thing. Everybody waves at the kids in the children's hospital and the families and the medical professionals who are working there, caring for them. It's almost like 70,000 people are offering up a prayer for God to uh, be with those families and, and help those families. It's beautiful. It lasts about a minute. And then, as soon as it ended, thousands of people in Kinnick Stadium started booing the players, the coaches, because we're not scoring enough points, we're not getting enough yards. Listen, I am the kind of guy... I really do, uh, other than yesterday, cheer for Iowa State. This morning, I listened to an Iowa State instant reaction podcast. You know what the Iowa State fans were saying, or uh, the, these guys were saying? One of them said, I think the Iowa fans booing yesterday helped Iowa State win. Good job, Hawkeye fans. <laughs> and we laugh, and we, it's sports. I, I'm your pastor. And you can boo if you want to boo, unless... You're serious about following Jesus. 
And if you're serious about following Jesus, he calls you to a different way. He calls you to a better way. Whether you're at a, a college stadium, a high school stadium, a gym filled with middle schoolers or elementary, you know how hard it is to get referees these days? Why would a referee want to sign up to suffer abuse from, I almost called somebody a name that I'm not supposed to call them. Jesus is saying, well, <laughs> it's not just sports people. If we were being honest, raise your hand if you've ever been angry. I'm not asking you to do that. Stand up if you've ever called anyone an idiot. What we would see is this is a room full of murderers. According to the standard that Jesus is setting in Matthew chapter 5. And that should make us squirm a little bit. That should make us feel uncomfortable. That should make us ask, what is Jesus doing? He's just getting started. Verse 27. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What is Jesus saying? Was, uh, we have new member classes around here three times, three times a year. You know what we don't have? Dismemberment classes. <laughs> this, Pastor Mike, when he teaches on this, says, this is how you know that there's not one single Christian denomination that takes the Bible literally. Because we're all walking around with two eyes and two hands. We don't take the Bible literally, but we take the Bible seriously. And Jesus is saying some very serious things here. He goes on to say some very serious things about divorce and keeping your promises and loving your enemies. This is his interpretation of the law of Moses, the Torah, and, and that we're supposed to uh, wholeheartedly follow these commands. And here's how Jesus sums up his teaching in verse 48. We'll put it up on the screen. Read this out loud with me. You are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How's that going for you? And again, is that really, is uh, perfection is the goal here, Jesus? Perfection is what you expect from us, Jesus? What is Jesus doing? Part of what we see Jesus doing and we see it in the Sermon on the Mount, but we see it in a lot of other places in, in Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus points us to an ideal. Why does Jesus point us to an ideal? Because he loves us. I know the very best way for you to live. I know the very best way for you to relate to one another, to relate with the people in the world. And this is the ideal. This is the standard. And, and Jesus loves us too much. He never lowers the bar. He never. What we see Jesus doing is he says, you think your standard is high? Let me up that a notch or three. And he points us to this ideal. He points us to this standard. He refuses to lower the bar because he loves us. And at the same time, that's not the only thing that Jesus does. He points us to a standard. He points us to an ideal. And at the same time, he does something else. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with this story at the beginning of John chapter 8, some uh, religious teachers, religious leaders bring a woman 
They throw her at Jesus' feet and they say she's been caught in the act of adultery. So many things going on here that, that we could talk about. We don't have time to talk about all of it, but like it takes two for adultery. They bring one, they bring the woman. The man is nowhere in the story. And part of what that shows us is when there is a hyper focus on keeping the rules, it always leads to an unjust application of the law. When there's a hyper focus on keeping the rules, it leads to an unjust application of the law. But that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. They throw this woman at Jesus' feet. They say, Jesus, the Torah says don't commit adultery. We've heard you say don't commit adultery. We've heard you raise the bar and you say uh, lust is the same as adultery. The Torah, Jesus, the written law says the punishment for her sin is we're all supposed to throw rocks at her until she dies. What do you say, Jesus? Now, there, there's a both and when it comes to reading scripture that's important for us. I, I talked about the importance of knowing the whole story and, and how sometimes uh, it would be good to set a challenge to read through the Bible. If you do it in a year, great. If you do it in five years, great. But over the course of, of your life as a follower of Jesus, it's good to read the whole thing and know the, the whole story. That's an important way to engage with scripture. It's not the only way to engage with scripture. And, and sometimes the way we engage in scripture is to read very slowly and to meditate on the Word of God and, and, and to chew on it. And yes, there's the written Word of God, but there's also the Word of God that's living and active and allow that living and active Word of God to teach us something as we are engaging with Scripture. The goal isn't to get through the Word of God, it's to get the Word of God through us. So if we slow down and take our time to go through this story, like, imagine being there and watching this unfold. Uh, what's the facial expression of this woman? What, what, what's the fear, the look of fear? She knows what's going on. What's the look of anger and the, the lack of love in the nonverbals of, of this angry mob of men? What's Jesus' tone of voice as he goes through this encounter? They've got these questions for Jesus. The law says we're supposed to stone her. Jesus, what do you say? And initially, Jesus doesn't say anything. He stoops down. He writes in the ground with his finger. And this makes the men angrier. They're like, is Jesus ignoring us? Did we stump him? Did we prove him to be a fraud? Uh, what's going on? So they keep demanding an answer from Jesus. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Finally, Jesus stands up, and let's read together what he says. Read it with me. All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And again, because we're familiar with this verse, I think we read through it too quickly. The law says we're supposed to stone this woman to death, Jesus. What do you say? And what's the first thing Jesus says? All right. How long did he pause after he said, all right. I mean, you, Jesus is masterful. People were picking up stones. He says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Jesus understands they're demanding an answer to their question, but there's actually 
a better question for them to be asking. There's a different lesson they need to be taught. Whoever is without sin can throw the first stone, and no stones got thrown that day. And sometimes people take a look at what Jesus is doing here, and they're like, okay, so this is where Jesus is abolishing the law. This is where Jesus is saying the rules no longer apply. Uh, let's go back to the Lego movie really quick. Emmett is a rule follower. He loves the rules. He says, give me the instructions. I'll know what to do. I'll do it. It'll be great. One day he finds the Lego piece of resistance, which is connected to some kind of a prophecy that gets him connected to this group of people. They go on this adventurous uh, journey to find the craggle and take out the villainous plans of evil Lord business. And along the way, they find themselves in a very strange place called Cloud Cuckoo Land. Take a look. Guys, look, a rainbow. So you're going to drive up the curve, Bart. Take it all the way to the top. The car. Friends, welcome to Cloud Cuckoo Land. Now, I just need to give the secret knock. going to come right out. I have no idea what's going on or what this place is at all. Hi! I am Princess Unikitty, and I welcome you all to Cloud Cuckoo Land! So there's no signs or anything. How does anyone know what not to do? Here in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there are no rules. There's no government, no babysitters, no bedtimes, no frowny faces, no bushy mustaches, and no negativity of any kind. You just said the word no like a thousand times. And there's also no consistency. I hate this place. Any idea is a good idea, except the not happy ones. Those you push down deep inside where you'll never, ever, ever, ever find them. So is, is that what Jesus is trying to create in John 8? Whoever's without sin, you can cast the first stone. No, no more rules. Just do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy. That would not be a good way to interpret the life, the teaching of Jesus. We just read in Matthew 5 where he says, I did not come to abolish the law. Whoever's without sin can cast the first stone, and one by one they drop their rocks and they walk away. And when it's just Jesus and the woman... He says this to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the importance of living in the tension. I, I want to talk about that just a little bit more. Uh, maybe another way of thinking about living in the tension would be to say, uh, we have to learn to be comfortable with the paradox of faith. If you've been around Hope for a while, you've heard me teach on this before, but it's been a while, so it's a good refresher. This is kind of who we are. This shapes how we are uh, as a congregation, a as a church. We try to be comfortable with the paradox of faith. So pretty much every major theological belief that we have as, as Christians is paradoxical. Uh, we're monotheistic, right? Christianity is one of the monotheistic faiths. There's only one God. And we heard it in our Bible reading. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
We worship one God, not a whole bunch of gods, just one God. And the one God we worship as Christians exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you're new to faith, if you're skeptical of faith, skeptical of Christianity, if you've been a Christian for decades, we bring up the topic of the Trinity, everybody's like, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Which one is it? Is it one God or is it three? And, and the faithful response is to say, I cannot explain it to you adequately. People have written volumes, books have been written about the topic of the Trinity, trying to help us understand it. Nobody completely understands it, but by faith, we understand there's this mysterious component to faith that we can't fully understand it, but by faith, we believe there's one God, and that one God exists in three unique persons. What about Jesus? Is Jesus a human being born of Mary, or is Jesus the Son of God? Is he a divine being? Which one is it? Both. Fully human and fully divine. Not 50% of one, 50% of the other. Fully God, fully man. That's what we believe about Jesus, and it's paradoxical. It's two things that seem like they can't be true at the same time. By faith, we believe they are. What about, uh, is God sovereign? So, uh, God knows every detail of my life. God has every nanosecond of my life planned out, predestined. This is how it's going to go. Or do I have free will? Do I get to choose? Do I get to make choices? Uh, do I face decisions that will alter the direction of my life? Faithful Christian response is to say, I don't fully understand how this works, but both are true at the same time. God is sovereign and I have free will. Part of what we see Jesus doing here in this encounter, John chapter 8, but it's also what we see Jesus doing when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's setting up another paradox of faith. Jesus is teaching and pointing to an ideal. Anger is the same as murder, Jesus says. Lust is the same as adultery. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's pretty idealistic. Jesus teaches and points us to this ideal, and at the same time, Jesus refuses to condemn us when we fall short of the ideal. Which is it, Jesus? Am I supposed to follow the rules? Am I supposed to be a wholehearted commitment to the rules? Or do the rules no longer apply? And, and for Jesus, it's both. It's both. Why? Because Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us too much to lower the bar, to lower the standard. He's going to teach and point us to this ideal. This is the best way for you to live. And Jesus refuses to condemn us when we fall short, just like he did with that woman in John 8. Go and sin no more, he says to her. He says something similar to each one of us. Go and sin no more. Remember, uh, the, the word for the law in the Old Testament is Torah. And faithful uh, Jewish people in the Old Testament, they understood. If you want to be right with God, if you want to experience the best kind of life, you must follow Torah. Follow the law. Jesus shows up. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to accomplish its purpose. And you'll notice you don't see Jesus encouraging people to follow Torah. What you do see Jesus doing is inviting people, follow me. Follow me. Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the living God? Follow me. Jesus, what do you, how do you make sense of this part of the written law, the law of Moses? Follow me. 
follow me, follow me, follow me. Who, whoever believes in me will not die. If you love me, obey my commandments, Jesus says. This is my commandment, love each other. The way I've loved you, that's how I want you to love one another. What we see Jesus doing is in his life, in his teachings, in his death and resurrection, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in the prophets. Jesus is the, the Torah personified. He points us to a standard, he points us to an ideal, and he refuses to condemn us when we fall short of that ideal. I said earlier, we're, we're sitting in a room full of murderers. And that's true, but it's not the whole truth. We all have all kinds of sin in our life that is in need of the forgiveness, the grace of God. And so the rest of the truth is we're sitting in a room filled with people who are loved by God because your sin is no match for the mercy of God. This is a room filled with people who are loved by God. And because he loves us, he points us to the ideal. He said, let me show you, Jesus... Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the Torah. I'm the law personified. Let me show you the way to the very best kind of life, now and for all eternity. I don't, I don't know what it is about us as human beings. Um, we just It's so easy for us to compare ourselves to people who we think are not doing as good a job as we are. And over and over again throughout church history, um, th there has to be just kind of this awakening that happens where God is at work in us as individuals, God is at work in us as communities of faith to help us stop looking down our noses at those people out there and instead uh, remember how amazing God's grace is for each of us. When, when you, what you see Jesus doing as he's constantly raising the bar one of the purposes of the law is to show us our need for a Savior. We cannot be perfect. We cannot perfectly uh, keep the law and, and the prophets. But we have the perfect love of God that gives us a second chance, that gives us grace, that gives us forgiveness, that gives us the power to live a different kind of life. But we so easily forget that. I, I often have said uh, John chapter 10, verse 10 is my favorite verse in all of the Scripture. Uh, last couple of years, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 is making a run for the money. I want to read this verse to you. We'll put it on the screen. You don't have to read it out loud. Just listen uh, to these words and, and feel how it resonates in your spirit. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? It's not the fear of God. It's not the fear of punishment that's intended to turn us from our sin. It's the kindness of God. It's the grace of God. Uh, Mark, who's one of the um, singers on the worship team, and worship team, you can go ahead and come out at this point, get ready for the closing song. Uh, Mark works for an organization called Prison Fellowship. And a couple of weeks ago, we were down in West Des Moines, and we, we created a worship service. They were able to live stream into the Anamosa Correctional Facility. And the incarcerated men in that prison uh, were able to hear the good news of God's love for them through Jesus Christ. Last night, Pastor Jeremy sent Mark a text. Uh, Jeremy's at the West Des Moines campus. 
uh, a picture of Jeremy, and he was standing by a guy. And the guy Jeremy was standing by just got released from the Anamosa Correctional Facility. He saw that worship service that was streamed in a couple of weeks ago, showed up for worship at Hope last night. How, how amazing do you suppose grace feels to that guy? How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? When's the last time grace felt amazing to you? And you recognize that without God, without a Savior, you're drowning. Let's stand up. Let's sing the first verse of Amazing Grace together. And then we'll go into our closing song. Uh, Kyle, can you lead it? Oh, my, yeah. my stuffy nose. Yeah. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lost, but now. 